0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Um, how is the new year treating you? I know it's very early on in 2021, but we're just a few days in, and um, I'm feeling pretty good. How's it How's it going on your end?
0: I'm feeling pretty good, too, trying to uh, turn a page and uh, start each year with a clean slate, and I don't want to be cliche about it, but that's what I'm trying to do.
1: Yeah, and I I really hope our listeners are having a good start to their 2021. Interesting that you said that you were making attempts to turn the page, have a clean slate, because our guest today is turning the page on a chapter in his life that we're very familiar with and a lot of our fans are, and listeners, uh, fans of true crime are familiar with.
0: Great segue, Lance. That is correct. If for nothing, I have a good segue. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we're talking about Todd Matthews. Todd Matthews is kind of known as the godfather of internet sleuthing, I guess you could say. He um, helped to identify a Jane Doe in Kentucky that was, for decades, only known as Tent Girl. And he did this in 1998, so uh, in the Internet's infancy, it's pretty remarkable.
1: Really is. And what's also pretty remarkable is that he looks like he's no older than 25. I think he's 26. He's a, he might be 26, maybe just turned 26 a, a few months ago. But the man's got an endless uh, amount of youth, not only in his appearance, but in his demeanor, in his passion, his motivation, his drive. He was the longtime media director for NamUs. And just recently was let go after a bit of a company restructure. There was a little bit of friction that went on there. And some members of the true crime community had a lot of questions about that. And, and Todd addresses those questions and then some in this interview. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah, we kind of jump right into the topic, and uh, I think a lot of people noticed on social media a few weeks ago a call to help fund NamUs, and of course NamUs is the national missing and unidentified persons system that Todd Matthews went on to help create, which was so cool about his uh, assistance with Tent Girl, he was really asked by the government to help set up this database that connects missing persons and Jane Doe's Something that is incredibly useful and valuable and needs to be in place. So when people found out that there was some budgetary concerns uh, and Todd had had been let go, people were very confused about the direction of NamUs. And the petition that was set up to help fund NamUs was sent through the UNTCHI which was new to me. And we learned uh, from Todd in this interview that uh, it stands for the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification. And I think to a lot of people, they were curious, uh, what is this and and how does this even connect to funding NamUs? Is this even legit?
1: And one of the major connections between NamUs and UNTCHI is a gentleman that Todd references named Art Eisenberg, who retired in 2017 and unfortunately passed away the next year. He was the principal investigator of Namus's grant through the University of North Texas Center for Human Identification.
0: That's right, Lance. And not to confuse you with more sites, but uh, Todd currently is the founder or co-founder of the Doe Network. And you can find them at doenetwork.org. That's D-O-E network.org. And we're speaking with Todd Matthews live at 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursday night. This Thursday, January 7th, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. We are we are having the godfather of internet sleuthing on live uh, after this episode airs. So if you have any questions for Todd, please bring them on down. Thursday night, Get Vocal. There's a link in the show notes.
1: Yep. Swing on over to Get Vocal. As you know, Get Vocal is the only platform where you can engage right in the conversation. You can even pop on the screen and, and have a little face to face, virtual face-to-face time with us and with our guest. And our guest this week is Todd Matthews, like you said. So that's G E so that is G-E-T-V-O-K-L dot com. And there will be a link in the show notes. And this is a tremendous way to come back into the new year. We took a couple of uh Thursdays off from the True Crime Thursday because of Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, and we're feeling refreshed and regenerated and something else that has an RE at the beginning but Todd Matthews is going to join us regardless of his living status at the time that's what he told us even if he's dead he said he'll be there in ghost form
0: that's right
1: and there's some links in the show notes
0: to further read on this topic that uh, we're going to discuss with Todd in this episode okay everybody I hope you enjoy it please follow us on Twitter at CrawlSpacePod. Pod we're on Instagram and Facebook too thanks a lot for listening Welcome back to the show,
1: Todd Matthews. How are you today, Todd?
2: I'm good. I'm good for a 50-year-old man.
1: <laughs> you, sir, are not 50 years old. You you don't look a day over 30. So, I'm going to go ahead and say that 50 is the new 30 and Todd Matthews is the front runner, the face of uh the face of the new 50. Welcome to the show.
2: I shoot up with Just for Men hair dye, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just main main that Just for Men. That is a uh, sound advice here on the crawl space uh program. Thank you. Yeah. It it
0: works for you. More like just for legends. Um so t- Todd, tell us uh tell us a little we have had you on the show before. You uh you have uh you are a legend in what we do in in web sleuthing and uh this crime media space. You were kind of known, well, really known as the original Web Sleuth because of Tent Girl. Isn't that correct?
2: Uh, that's what I'm told. Nobody's challenged my title yet, so we'll see.
1: I don't think anyone dares challenge the title yet. So uh, good good for you. But you, um, I don't know how to address you. I don't know. Uh, you are the original Web Sleuth. Uh, you were heavily, heavily involved with NamUs, and you did some incredible work there. Um, and then before we started this interview You said that you're, you're branching out into acting So I don't know I think you're going to be uh, officially declared a sir So maybe we just call you Sir Todd Matthews
2: I, I wish I wish And I have, I have actually communicated with the Queen before But I, I didn't get an offer of a knighthood So uh, I'll, I'll wait If she's Not listening yet. I'm available
1: Well we, we definitely know she's listening She's a uh, staunch crawlspace listener
2: I've heard she's a fan
1: Oh yeah, big fan
2: Well, it has been an unusual year. I I did send you guys a detailed email in advance so that uh, I'm not just going to have a run-on conversation here explaining, but things have changed with NamUs. It is up for solicitation, and the date to finalize your solicitation is going to be January 19th of 2021, so it's kind of a rapid pace. The government's moving very quickly right now to uh, place some projects, and uh, NamUs will most likely move from UNT.
1: What? Why? What? What? What happened within the organization? What happened outside of the organization? And you did use the word solicit. So, what are you soliciting? I just threw like three questions at you. So, feel free to.
2: In in the world of a grant, uh, you know, they're solicited under a certain period of time. You know, publicly uh, to uh, to all entities. So, it, it's it's something that other organizations, uh, states, state agencies can actually bid on the management of a grant. And so that's what happened with Namus. It went from NFSDC. Uh, the National Forensic Science Technology Center. I was employed there, and then it went to UNT in 2011 uh, through the solicitation. And I jumped from an employee of NFSDC to UNT. So for five years, it's solicited only to the agency that has it. So it's kind of like a a private solicitation and you have to write a budget submission every year. And we did that for five years and then we've got a second five-year award. So we're at the end of that. And there was a little bit of chaos um, during this. I was actually terminated from employment on January 6th of 2020. So I've been here. um, I've had a year to do a lot of different things. My 50th year, I've been fortunate in a way uh, to have the opportunity to not do anything but what I wanted to do for a year and plan on this because I knew the solicitation was coming up. But I was terminated for inability to create unique marketing concepts.
1: That sounds silly.
2: That, yeah.
1: Also, that sound that sounds like the exact opposite of what you had been doing, unless I'm missing something.
2: I, I was getting. I, I got along great with N.I.J. the National Institute of Justice, but once Art Eisenberg, there was always a little pu- push and pull at UNT. So, you know, the lab was already there, the DNA lab, and then Namus sit along beside it. But and while Art was there, you know, there was a balance. Arthur Eisenberg, you know, developed the lab at UNT, and uh, you know, during the first five years, things were great. Art got sick during the second five years, so he was a little absent. Uh, that interrupted the balance a little bit. You know, there was a, he had a co-PI, and he was a good guy, and, you know, he would fill in as needed, sign the checks. You know, PI is the principal investigator of a grant. So in Art's absence, uh, or during a period of time where he wasn't able to respond, his co-PI would step in and just basically do the job. You know, he didn't have to really make any decisions. He just basically had to push the buttons and make things keep moving. So he did that. Then there was a period of time that Art took a medical leave and he was going to be gone for more than just a little bit, you know, and ultimately he ended up passing away. The second that happened, uh, the co-director at the University of North Texas Health Science Center um, immediately Took uh, the opportunity to be the PI. The name is Grant. So the co-PI was out of the picture, and he became the PI. So balance is out of balance. Um, and he and I were never really, I would say, friendly. Uh, Bruce Bedoli, Art brought him on board from. He was from New York. They're both from New York. And uh, I don't know. I just always felt a challenge intellectually because I don't think he had any respect for the fact that I didn't have a degree and that, uh, you know, some of these things happened anyway, Um, and I don't really know what all was this problem, but there was always a lot of friction there, and uh, now that art was out of the way with the balance, it, it was immediate, just strange, odd things that I never expected, and I didn't say a lot about it before, because I didn't want to disrupt the way NamUs was operating, so internally, myself and some of the other lower level management people, you know, we would complain at some of the oddities, but uh, there was a period of time where I went to University of North Texas to train a new staff member, another regional program specialist, and I got an email from uh, the current PI, why are you, it's it's come to my attention, you're in Texas, why are you here, what's the purpose of your visit, and it's like, geez, you know, you signed the travel document, you know, uh, whether he did or by proxy, it, it should have been on his radar, so I go to the building where he's at, and I thought, okay, this is just a misunderstanding. And uh, you know, I meet him in the hallway, and uh, I said, you know, you, you signed the travel. I'm here to train an extra staff member. So instead of saying, I'll oh, slip my mind, pardon me, nothing like that. Well, you should have made appointment to see me. If you're going to be in town, you should always make appointments so that we can have conversations. It's like, okay, I don't really have anything to talk to you about. You know, and the purpose of my visit is to train a staff member, which we're cutting into that time right now. That's what I was thinking internally. So it's just a weird thing. And other people noticed. It wasn't just me. There was there were other people that had some odd encounters like that. And uh and I'm telling the truth. So if somebody doesn't like it, I'm not slandering anybody, I'm telling you the truth. This is this is what happened.
0: If you don't mind, can I can I just interrupt here uh for a moment? I just want to kinda uh back up and, and clarify, I guess, what some of these um uh agencies are. Um, you worked for NamUs, which, uh, tried to, which is their, your goal was what at NamUs?
2: Well, my goal at NamUs, you know, I, you know, I worked in the early development in 2007, uh, to complete the NamUs program and make an operational program. And it was essentially the national missing and unidentified person system, the national clearinghouse for missing and unidentified persons. So that become, the goal was to identify as many people as possible, Uh, Between the missing and unidentified, that was priority one was to make sure you can send as many people home as possible among the unidentified and unclaimed persons, people that might be alive and uh, not know their identity.
0: Okay. And that's a government agency uh, funded by the U.S. government. You worked for them.
2: Yes, contractually, actually. So we had to actually work. The people that worked as name of staff were actually employed by the entity that won the award. So, and that alone is enough. Even if you stayed with the program, you know, I went through like one, two, three, four different people that had some degree of management or the creation of NamUs. So you're having to jump around. It's a little disruptive. You know, uh, if you have insurance attached to your employment, um, you know, your uh, retirement, you know, they can be decimated by jumping around. But I mean, that was the hazard of the, you know, the day, you know, you just have, you just have to go with that. That's just, if you want to be on board you are you know soft money grant money is uh is difficult it's difficult you you know the risk but the program I was told by one of the directors at NIJ that it was the most successful program under their umbrella you know and I didn't get that in writing I was just told that at some point so uh I, I think it was true because um the success stories that we had um, you know, it was always a good news story. If we done something in the newspaper, it was always a good news story. As good as you could get, you know, somebody was resolved after 30 years, the family stops wondering. And, you know, I've said before, uh, missing can be worse than dead because of that unknown element. And there's a period of time when people go missing that uh, it's kind of understood that they're probably deceased at that point. And, you know, you just you want to make sure you bring them home and and, uh, you know, have your funeral, do what you have to do.
0: Okay. And um, I want to get back to what we were talking about before. But um, what is UNT or UNTCHI? Because I think when a lot of people saw on social media that NamUs was being defunded and it linked back to UNT's site, I know I was confused. What even is this? This is the first I've ever heard of it.
2: So it's University of North Texas Center for Human ID. And that housed the original uh, DNA program that they had, and then uh, bid on the Namus grant, and then Namus is there too. So it's almost like uh, two different entities, and you know, having to become one and work under grant funding. Initially, it was ideal; it was the the, the thing to do. You know, if you could keep balance and uh, uh, a little separate separation of uh, who's doing what and who has access to what. But I'll just be honest with you. Uh, as long as art was alive, I felt like, you know, I had a little bit of a toehold there, but I won't say that I always felt it welcome, you know, as far as because and looking back, you see things, you know, you walked in and, and you're uh, a director of a program or a co-director of a program um, and you're employed right next to people that have been there many, many years. So I can see that uh, maybe it looks like they were overlooked for certain positions, you know, when we came in with, with the grant. And I'm oblivious to things like it. It, You know, when I first got there, I was just so happy to be there and have a place for NamUs that I felt was a stable place. I I really didn't think of some of those things. You know, it wasn't a, I I have a a title that's bigger than yours and you've been here 20 years. And I just walked in off the street. But I I, I guess I can see that looking back now that that might have been a little hard for some of the people there. Uh, And then me with no degree, you might be giving directions to somebody that had a, a Ph.D., at times. Right. So I guess that's a little hard on the ego at times. And again, I was oblivious of that. I was so happy to be somewhere and to just do something. You know, I never set out to be uh, part of the leadership of NamUs. I thought I would be one of the facilitators, but that opportunity came to be one of the leadership and uh, you do what you have to do. You know, you do it just like, okay, this is your role now. And this is what you're going to do. It became really clear once art was gone. The only way, to be a program director was to be there on site, you know, in in the day to day and not working remotely. Uh, The the intricacies of the relationships, some of the tensions, it was just the only way to do it was to be there. And I knew that, you know, it was was becoming painfully clear that I'm not gonna be able to please these people uh, at a distance. And, and we were adding staff, I didn't always agree with it, we were adding a lot of internal staff, like associate RPSs, which were great people, don't get me wrong, but it's like, so we're adding associate backup assistant RPSs in-house, and they're there in Fort Worth. And, you know, what was, it become clear that they were there for the purpose of, they were eventually going to be the regional program specialist in-house because I don't think uh, Dr. Badoli and some of the people at UNT liked the idea of remote access. So they had a very limited gene pool in Fort Worth. And I think the value of the regional program specialists being in their area of service, I think that's important. They're part of the community in which they serve. So that's always been a model that I wanted to stick to. But seeing that, that um, the opportunities to bring more people in house, and I felt like we had... We could spend money on other things besides that, you know, backfilling and I just not sure we needed them. But, you know, me, I doubt myself and I thought, well, maybe people know better than me how to grow an organization. I'm just worried about the mission. So and that was a mistake, you know. Um, I did I didn't know I was competing with anybody, uh, or, you know, for any any position to hang on. You know, when you when you're doing something you love and you see it making a difference, you just you just start Seeing stars and butterflies, you really do. It was just perfect, and felt like we were really making a difference.
1: In retrospect, looking back on it now, do you think that you would have approached this a little bit, uh, a little bit differently, or are you happy with the way it worked out, or, or do you think that you could have done something to, I don't know, maybe ease some of the the friction, or was that a lost cause?
2: I think ultimately, I tried. I tried to ease some of the frictions, but it just, it was a lost cause. There was no, when I think I would, uh, make two steps forward, I'd go one step back. And, uh, every time you thought that you might've overcome something, it would, it's something else would blow up. And it was just like, this is not going to end. And then, you know, I was the director of communication and case management for, for quite a while. Um, and then we added a, a layer of supervision so that we'd have, you know, as we built staff, you needed specialized zones. And we had a, um, a supervisor of the regional program specialist. So that person reported to me and it was, it was, it was working out really well. And every time we would grow a little bit more, I felt like maybe looking back now, I think maybe I was being cut out a little bit at times. I just didn't realize it. So director of communication and case management become director of communication and marketing. Marketing is not something That's you know, and marketing and communication are very different. And I kept being reassured not by Dr. Bedoli, but by uh, honestly B.J. Palmer, a person that I consider one of the best friends I've ever had. Marketing and communication is basically the same thing. No, it's not. No, Um, I would be tasked with weird things. It was just like, okay, you're going to make a brochure for this, and then the criticism was strange. It was like, what's this weird white space? And it just okay. This is a no win scenario here. Uh, this is what's this weird white space, and nothing, nothing. It's just like uh, okay, Stonewall at the end of the year, nothing is being approved, nothing is light. There was always input, uh, change this, change this, and I thought this, this is it, you know. And clearly, I was not happy in what I was doing. And before Christmas of last year, BJ said, "If you're if you're not happy with." Um, marketing if you're not comfortable with it we could talk after the first of the year and see if maybe you want to do something else you know and you make a lot of money being a program director I'll admit it you know you, you make you make good money six figures so I thought well maybe here's a chance for me to kind of scale back get out of things I'm not comfortable with and just just worry about operational things and and things of the day-to-day so I thought about it and um the first of last year you know when our scheduled call um there was no alternative job. BJ said, uh, we are going to terminate your employment. And I said, what about this other possibility? What about this? Uh, The decision's been made. So I thought, well, okay, Uh, I don't think NIJ was particularly happy about it, but there wasn't a lot they could do about it. I still got communication from NIJ from time to time. I still got uh, the people, you know, in the public that would still come to me with their problems. I still had to do the job at times, I still had to do the job. I would have to process things that people would contact me about and then dish them out to whoever I could thought, maybe in a less direct way, but, you know, not not a phone call and a conversation with a staff member, but I got this. I did this with it. This is all I know. Can you take it from here? You know, you can just hand these mm-hmm. things off. Um, so I wasn't happy you know and I was in between two surgeries at the time and October of last year I just had a major hernia surgery they all knew it I should have been on a medical leave but I wasn't you know I kept doing what I had to do um, you know working from home you can you can work in your pajamas if you have to you can still have conference calls so there was no reason really to take off and uh, I was scheduled for another surgery to redo to repair this in January so I was terminated in between two surgeries. And if I'd been on a medical leave, it, it it wouldn't have happened. Hmm. It couldn't have happened. I I think, you know, they can't do that during that. It just seemed all very coordinated and planned. And then I was in house, somebody replaced me six months later and that position was now internal. So, and at this point, I already knew NamUs would be solicited in the spring. It was the end of the five year and it was going to go up for competitive bid. So I thought, well, I'll just wait and maybe partner look, look for whoever's going to bid against it. And then maybe work with them, collaborate and try to, you know, see if there's any way to recover NamUs and, you know, just let it be as it is. Clearly I couldn't work with UNT, just leave it alone and, uh, and just wait. Then there was a lot of controversy. Uh, a few, a couple of years ago, the DNA lab runs seriously low of money and Dr. Badoli, instead of, telling us as name of staff me as uh, communications director that uh, we're going to have to stop taking DNA we can't process it uh, retro we were sending out kits the day after he was deciding to close the lab door so everything in the air went back to the agencies that submitted it so this is a communication problem and uh, I wasn't communicated to and none of the staff were uh, there was a lot of anger from the public from law enforcement you know you they trust you to collect a family reference sample and submit it and then it gets returned to them. I don't know if we'll ever get to collect them again. You know, some might not be possible to recollect. You know, so that was a period of anger from people and the staff that I had was on the front line, regional program specialist. So uh, the director put a moratorium on media and he told me to send people to him if the media had questions, wasn't allowed to talk about the DNA and the funding issues send them to him, and he quite literally said, send them to me, and I just won't reply. I won't answer them. Well, that puts the problem back on me because they're going to come back to me again. So I knew then, and this is a couple of years ago, this this is not going to work. Um, You know, and then after I left my position, and this year, the same thing happened. There was another DNA shutdown, another moratorium. And to me, it just seems like a colossal, almost intentional thing to do why would you do that I mean why in the world why would you not and there was more communication with the team this time I did here at some point but um, not to coordinate that a little better and not to disappoint people or make them feel anger I guess it's easy to make somebody mad when you've got a filter out there you got people out in front of you that's going to absorb the shock I guess that's easy it's easier for you and then if you're not going to respond or take any ownership of it or any responsibility even easier So, uh, and NIJ really, it was nothing on their part that I could see. It was just, and I did, I went to two of my boss's bosses and talked to them about it. And, uh, obviously it wasn't the first time they heard these things, you know, the, the bullying type, um, actions, intimidation, you know, we would have a conference call and, uh, the group would be on the, on the call. And he would say, I hear, I hear clinking, somebody's washing their dishes. You know, like, like we're not at our jobs, we're, we're working in our home. So I, I get it. He didn't like remote working, but that team worked damn hard and their, the, the product of their workflow was evident. There was no doubt, no doubt that they were spending more than 40 hours a week on that.
0: What, what is NIJ? Ah,
2: huh, sorry. You guys oh. are crazy you're supposed to know this. That's the National <laughs> Institute of Justice. It's the research arm of the United States Department of Justice.
0: Okay. And how does that connect to NamUs?
2: So they are, NamUs is wholly owned by the National Institute of Justice. So they're, okay. the, ones, they're the ones that uh, hold NamUs accountable and reports would go directly back to the National Institute of Justice. And it always seemed really good. You know, the media I would do everything I could to get newspaper articles, uh, feel good things, just as, as much as you could get out there. It's hard to sugarcoat blunt force trauma and make a good news story out of it. But, you know, you could do it. You know, I felt like I had the connections. I felt like if I had the opportunity with the DNA funding uh, issues, I think if I had known and had an opportunity, I think I could have softened the blow. I think I could explain it in a way that it wouldn't have been so it wouldn't, wouldn't have generated so much anger, which maybe that's what was wanted, was to create anger. You don't get what you want. Uh, you piss everybody off, and then people mm-hmm. are going to respond. Like, I, you know, you see it. You saw it. When, when it appeared that NamUs was in jeopardy, you saw the masses respond.
0: What would happen if NamUs
2: did go away? I don't think it ever will. It, it could go through different phases, but I, it's going to leave a huge gap. Uh, It it definitely is going to leave a huge gap and uh, a lot of services that could be processed through NamUs, you know, having a dedicated staff of around 20 people working on the missing and unidentified full time, you know, imagine that being gone, you know, and the volunteers can only do so much to fill that void because, uh, jurisdictionally, there's certain things they can't do. They can't collect family reference samples. They can't handle evidence. There's just so many things. There's a big difference between, you know, I still have Doe Network. There's a big difference between that. Doe Network, you know, the same goal, but the Doe Network is volunteer services that do not investigate. Uh, They put things out on the internet. uh, Basically what comes from law enforcement, law enforcement like the Doe Network. And I will say since NamUs has been a little in flux this year, I've had more people try to contact Doe Network for help. Uh, Doe Network was established. It's been around for 20 years, probably maybe a little more than 20 years. And, uh, and it's just a place to go hang your posters and, and get the information out. The family, uh, the volunteers will do comparative comparisons and can submit them to the agency. So we think this John Doe could be this missing person and here's why. Not spitballing, but really good research where they've really looked at it. Uh, before name has come along, we kept a potential match and a ruled out list of people. So if if they've been submitted and law enforcement had ruled them out, we would keep a record of it, so the same thing wouldn't be submitted again, and that was really helpful, um, and we adopted some of that when we created NamUs, you know, when I had opportunities to input, you know, I thought, here's what we do here, I think it'd be helpful to keep, and, and we did that, we did that with NamUs, that was one of the things that I was able to get baked into the system, uh, disposition of remains, because I'd been through the process before of identifying somebody, and it's like, okay, where, where is she, you know we don't we don't really know is she on a shelf in a medical examiner's office is she buried uh you know there's just a lot of questions so right up front you need to know okay where is this body before I even get the family stirred up they're going to ask me where's my loved one where are their remains it's not just a scientific equation that's that's human humanity so that was baked into NamUs and um I just want to see it get back, get somewhere where it can have a permanent home and stop these solicitations. You know, I think if, if there was permanent funding somewhere where it would be like a National Center for Missing Exploited Children, where it wasn't constantly in a stage of not being able to grow because the money soft money. And when you hired people, we would hire people and literally have to tell them this is soft money, can't promise you anything, which life has no promises anyway. But it was, it was always, uh, felt like there was always a little bit of a threat out there that you know next year and it was the worst nightmare you know to think about that like uh, even though you know you got the grant and you know that it was going to be awarded the next day there was no reason for it not to you still sweat it out you know you're still you know i would still set up and wait for the word confirmation I trust but verify you know I wanted to see that that was uh, it was indeed that and you could continue on with that so and I'm just hoping that uh, Things that get better. I mean, I love the program. There's nothing wrong with the program. The workers at Namus are hard workers. They've been stumpified, <laughs> stumpified, if that's a word. At uh, some of the mayhem, I will say, I don't I don't know if it's lack of knowledge. I I, I don't know. I mean, some of the things I just can't explain. Um, you know, and and going to the bosses, the two bosses, uh, my boss's bosses, clearly it wasn't the first time when I talked to them. And I really feel like eventually it got back to him, and I really feel like my dismissal was was ultimately retaliation. What am I supposed to do, sue him? What would that result in, you know, so. Right.
1: Would you um say that Namus is currently still in a uh, a type of budget crisis?
2: I think you're always going to be sort of in a budget crisis until you have a stable budget, until you until you finally have a you know a black line of, of funding and and you know that it's going to come back as best as any promise has. But you know, National Center for Missing Exploded Children's Children is doing very well. Uh, they have a congressional budget that they don't really have to. You know, you always worry about something could go wrong. There could be a pandemic. You know, those things do happen. But, uh, you know, just just a peace of mind, knowing that you're going to have operational funds. And I think it's good that N.I.J. has oversight, you know, and I, I did overhear this. I was literally at UNT and I heard this individual say and eventually cut N.I.J. out of the process altogether. I don't think he wanted to be under N.I.J.'s. Um, oversight. And I think that's important to be under NIJ's oversight. To me, that's a star in your crown. If you're part of the United States Department of Justice, you're part of that arm. That's something to be proud of. That's something that uh, y- you have some validity. It's not about funding. I've heard this man say NamUs is a funding mechanism. NamUs is a unit within the greater organization. And it's like, no, NamUs is the national the, the National Center for Missing and Unidentified Persons, period. No matter where it's parked, that's where it is. I just want to see it parked, a solid foundation put down, and and this is it. And let it be what it's supposed to be. NECMEC's not a, you know, the National Center for Missing and Children, it's not a, a unit of something else. It is what it is. And I think NAMIS is just that important as well. And it needs to go somewhere that um, it's respected, whether I'm part of that or not whether I'm part of that or not. Um, it's never, this is just like the biblical story where the King was going to cut the baby in half. You know, when you're thinking about maybe a potential lawsuit or anything, it's like, no, no, don't destroy it. So you're just hoping like, please, please, I've spent 20 more than 20 years working on this cause. Don't, don't do anything that's going to hurt it. You know, I don't want to, you know, I only wish the best for NamUs. I wasn't always happy with UNT. Um, but I, I, to not see NamUs flourish it was like watching a, your child be sick. You know, you don't want that. I never wanted that. So I just held on to the hope uh, I can go through this year, let it go up for solicitation, let the voice of the people be heard and, and see what happens. And I would love, and I've talked to other agencies about the possible partnership where we could go back and maybe I could recover NamUs and be part of it. Um whether or not, if it can go somewhere, if I could be any part of the transition, uh, the, the startup, and then maybe go away. I don't care as, as long as I see it go somewhere. I've had some incredible opportunities this year with uh, some of the things I've done in acting. Uh, I have started a book. You know, we've, I've always talked about maybe a book. We have started a book. I've done a local news series on a couple of local cold cases. I've heard from Morgan Freeman earlier this year. Pandemic kind of put us in a pickle, but, uh, you know, he wanted to do some things with television. Pandemic kind of slowed that down, but we're looking at a podcast. Uh, maybe in 2021.
1: Morgan Freeman definitely doesn't have the voice for a podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I will. I will. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll do well, it. But I'll he wants to back it. at it. You know, he, his, his company, Revelations Entertainment, they wanted to see me go into a podcast first and then maybe look at television again as a possibility. And um, I can definitely do the podcast and then I'm going to compete with you guys and put you off the air. No, no, I would never do that. You guys are, you guys are awesome. I think there's a lot of room out there for a lot of podcasts and uh, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to, I think, make this, these issues better and make people be aware of them. People don't even know some of the things that are going on around them. And it's incredible uh, to have a voice and a platform. To me, I feel like I've had a platform and not to be able to use it for the good. It's just rotten. You know, it just it just not good. I still have people that come to me. Uh, they want to know what to do next. How do we do this? How do we do that? If I don't use it, then I don't deserve it. You know, it's we'll just have to see what happens. I would just love to be able to help Namas move into its new quarters. If wherever that might be.
1: Can I just ask how Morgan Freeman came into the picture? You just mentioned it so nonchalantly. How did you even connect with Morgan Freeman? Uh, is, is he an advocate? Well,
2: actually, I, got a lot of call, I get a lot of calls from production companies. Everybody's got this new idea of a show about missing and unidentified persons. The same show over and over and over by many different people. It's like, yeah, we kind of thought of that. You know, uh, We did the uh, documentary film called The Dead Unknown, and it won an Emmy well, there's a whole new crew of producers that come in. Hey, I got an idea. Let's do a show about this on a weekly basis. And then the whole trick is we want you to resolve the case right before our very eyes 24 times in a season. And and, you, and that's not going to happen, you know, to actually get somebody to look at it at a point of it, you're going to get as much done as possible, but you might not have a resolution by the end of the 30 minute program or an hour long program. Uh, Morgan Freeman's group is probably Revelations Entertainment is probably one of the biggest uh, production companies that has contacted me. A lot of the smaller ones, good ones, you know, but uh, and they understood the perspective of it's just not one and done. The ongoing cases that are going to go on. They did do several pitches this year, but in this pandemic, you know, we did film a sizzle reel. Uh, they have put out some, uh, you know, they did They did the pitches with, like, the Discovery ID. Um, there was a lot of pickups this year with that. So uh, didn't really get any, but We have people that really, really liked it, the idea of doing this show. It's a tight year with the pandemic and locations, filming people, being on, you know, traveling, meeting people, talking to them, very physical interactions was so going to be very, very difficult. So uh, Revelations didn't scrap that idea, but they did look at, like, To fill the gap, maybe we could look at the possibility of a podcast, or like I like to call it a Toddcast.
1: (laughs) It's, yeah, it's now called a Toddcast. That's absolutely brilliant. (laughs) So that.
2: You know, that's something that I think of, uh, you know, I did a radio show a number of years ago called Missing Pieces, so I did it before there was a podcast, there. it's like 2006, I did 100 episodes where we uh, tape people on the telephone, very crude compared to the day and equipment that you guys have, it was literally a suction cut microphone on the back of a telephone that I recorded the calls, and the idea of that came because I knew I was having so many wonderful conversations with brilliant people that I thought man I wish I captured that you know like you have a phone call with somebody like an Arthur Eisenberg you know the godfather of DNA uh, family members that went on to be huge advocates and have passed state laws that require certain things to happen when a person's missing you know you think and those that should be written in stone somewhere so I record the shows and then volunteers would transcribe them so that they could be found searchable and I literally have producers that call today asking to license snips of some of those interviews that I had because the person that interviewed might not be alive anymore, you know, cause people do pass away waiting. So I've had that and I've always left that information out there. If it's out there and you can find it, you can have it, you do whatever you want to with it. As long as it helps somebody, I don't want to get in the complicated thing of licensing in a clip and Uh, you know, I know those, I know it's business. I know it is. I know people do that and that's what you have to do if you work and you have to have a business sense around it. But in the, in the sense of how I I did it, it's theirs. They can do whatever they want to with it because that was the, the spirit of that interview with that family member. It was to get their story out there, not to possess it in any way. So if I want to do something with, with television and media, uh, there will be a process in place and a budget in place where you can go do this. It's nothing. It can't ever be the skin off a family's back. Never. Yeah,
1: of course. Uh, I want to get back to something that you mentioned before. I got obsessed with Morgan Freeman. You said, <laughs> you said that you um, would be ready, or you know, in, in so many words, you said you'd be ready for some, I guess, iteration of Namus if if it if it found a new home wherever that may be. Are you working that out in your head? And does that connect somehow to the entertainment world? Like, would you use the entertainment vehicle to somehow promote or, or shine a light on this new version of NamUs?
2: Well, and it actually wouldn't be a new version of NamUs. It would just be in, in, in a new environment is, is what I'm hoping to see. Uh, you know, I'd like to see most of the same staff be part of it. I would certainly advise that. You don't change your frontline soldiers midstream. So uh, yes, I would definitely do, and that's what I've typically done over the years that I've worked with Namus. I've always used the platform as an opportunity uh, to m- promote the program, uh, even over you know when I when you know I actually owned the Do Network, but it got put aside. You know, like when you when you work in an office and uh, you you work on a national platform like that, you know you you divest from your your products. You know, and I did. You know, I put Namus before Doe Network or anything else, because that's what I was paid to do, that's what I was supposed to do, and I did it, I did it, so, uh, you know, even to my own um, harm, I think, you know, um, you know, I had another product that that could have been, I could have been working on it for the past 15 years, and growing it, and doing things differently with it, but uh, I'd done what I felt like I had to do for missing and unidentified persons in the nation, so I would certainly use any opportunity I have to promote Uh, NamUs a few years ago I was working on a program with Jerry Bruckheimer it was called the forgotten and Christian Slater was the star and it was right about the time in 2007 when I started working with uh NamUs as as part of the working group so I was already knee-deep in this program it was a scripted series um you know I had to go meet Christian Slater and all the characters that were based somewhat on volunteers or myself or people that I knew so I met them on the set got to work with them. then the opportunity came for uh, they needed to do something for me. They were trying to do something for me. So they offered me a public service announcement with, uh, for Doe Network because that was they were primarily focused on volunteers. And I said, do the PSA, but do it for NamUs. And it was actually aired during the broadcast of that show. That was the right thing to do. Might not have been the brilliant business thing to do, but the right thing to do was use that opportunity to promote a national program that your tax dollars are paying for. And I've had people tell me that I was an idiot for missing that opportunity. Okay, I'll take that. I don't care. You know, I I think I did what I was supposed to do. No less than two families saw that PSA on that scripted program and found their own loved ones in NamUs. You know, just as a result of that one, one thing, you know, they aired it on the end of several different of the episodes. And, you know, that series got canceled after the first year, it was too dark. I told them that you see me, I use humor to light and darkness. I do that all the time. And I felt like we were trying to work that in to the forgotten, but it was, you know, they immediately go dark. First thing when people work on shows like this, and it's like the darkness is what we're trying to escape. You know, uh, if we can use their situational humor that, that that you can use in these things to to brighten it up a little bit we like we joke so uh, that's what I wanted to do but it was already too late once ABC makes a decision it's done you know so I have copies of some of the episodes which is really cool and I have a pilot that I was working on with uh, Dick Wolf even at the same time and it never aired It had Katie Sackoff, Brian Cox, Damon Harriman in it it never aired you know, and I felt like, okay, I put all of that aside with scripted television back in 2007, all the way up till now. If I had focused on that during the period I focused on NamUs, uh, what what might have been accomplished for me personally, you know, so, I mean, I feel like I did put life on hold. I mean, you make good money. I mean, I, I honestly, I was making a six-figure salary, so, I mean, that, that was, you know, put things on hold. Uh, I felt like it was a duty. This is, you're paid, you're paid well, you do the best you can, that's what you have to do, so this year has been an opportunity to go back and revisit things without feeling guilty, um, you know, looking at opportunities, and, and they came, you know, I thought in the year of a pandemic, I wouldn't hear things, it gave me the opportunity to say about that book that I wanted to do, let's do it, you know, and I found a good local writer, she contacted me actually, and we're going to work together on the book, and um I already really started. It's scattered all over creation right now because there's so many missing, I mean, moving pieces in it. Like we're, we're not going to be able to put all of this in one book. We're going to have to pick out a few topics, a few cases, a few situations and flesh them out. Um, and we can, you know, there's so many things that we can work on for a book. So that's the next, I've not even thought about a publisher yet. Um, I, I think that'll just happen when it needs to happen. And things like that typically happen for me. Uh, if I try to plan it out too much, it just goes to hell. If I let, <laughs> things, if I just let things evolve organically, they work out really well. So I'm just going to let it happen. I'm just going to have faith that all of this stuff is going to work out, but I'm not going to have blind faith that I'm not going to try. Uh, I'm not going to not have this radio show with you guys to try to explain to people some of the things that happen. And, you know, do they need to write to their congressman and say, Hey, please support NamUs, no, 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 no specific demand, especially with where it goes, where it don't go, but to, to reach out to people and say, keep it in mind when you create these budgets that there, there is an issue out here that needs to be, you need to know about it. And if they just know about it when they're making some of their decisions, it's gonna help. And I certainly wouldn't turn down any letters of support from anybody that would like to see me at least go back for a period of time and try to make sure NamUs is steered to a home where we can say, okay, now it's got to do what it's got to do. The next generation ultimately has to take over at some point. Maybe then I'll just drift off into my books and television and, and do things at a personal level that I couldn't do when I was working for the Department of Justice. There's a lot of things I put on, on hold. A local case that I worked on, I called it Unfinished Business, that I got to go back and, and do a series of stories with my, with my newly found writer on a local case that I worked on. The first person I ever exhumed from a grave was right after tent girl and you know we're working on that it's a four-part series so far i can see it develop into an eight-part series as an op-ed uh i'm getting so much feedback from the community uh i read that i didn't know that so i thought as a coroner's inquest almost we're gonna put this story out there it was so clouded with urban legend did she jump did she fall did she even go over that cliff period you know that was the local story uh with with the girl and she's too big a story to go into in in great detail. But I I was able to reveal to the public here's what I know, here's what I don't know, and here's what I think. And the people have been coming out. A three-part story will probably be an eight-part story at some point in time because I've had people that I know this. Can I tell you this? Literally, we have a boutique. My wife has a boutique and it's in the basement. The whole bottom floor of our house is a is a storefront and it's you know it's a clothing boutique for women. Uh, I call it my little shop of horrors because I will have people that comes in and clearly they're not wanting to shop. They're wanting to chat. And, you know, so, I and, you know, you know, I saw that story and then you see them kind of kicking the dirt, you know, a little. And it's like, you want to talk? And then, you know, maybe we'll go up in the side room and and we'll talk. And, and they don't feel uncomfortable because as far as the public knows, they just come to a boutique. They didn't seek me personally out, so they're seen with me. They're here in the store, so their secret's safe. And I've had a lot of people that tell me things that were concerned about their safety. If I tell you this, I don't want anybody to know it. I'm under no obligation.
0: And uh, Todd, I want to ask, uh, you mentioned you had a couple of surgeries. How, uh, how are you feeling?
2: Oh, better. Much, much better. It was oh, uh, a hernia. I thought I was dying. I thought it was a heart attack, and it turned out to be. Uh, my guts coming out through the, the stomach wall. I was lifting a ladder and I literally thought I was dying. And it was, uh, they had to do it twice. There was still some pain and but they fixed it, but I, I can do things now. Uh, you know, i it's, it's like, I got a tight corset, in my stomach wall now so I can do a hundred setups. And I can think about it. So I actually, I feel I'm improved. I'm Todd 2.0. So uh, it's just the things that I, I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. They fixed it actually, you know, so it's, I'm all, I'm all tight in my car now, so it's good. <laughs> I feel better than I did before. I mean, it is some bad thing. It's called OLD. It's what we're getting. I you know, <laughs> gotcha. These old things. So it's,
0: uh... And uh, Todd, I noticed your uh, your email signature. Um, I love the, the skull uh, icon next to your name, which I think is a nice touch. But uh, it also says uh, Overton County Coroner. Can you tell us a little bit about your position there?
2: So... In 2007, when I went to NFSTC, the National Forensic Science Technology Center, and they were starting with NamUs, one of the things they didn't have was an ORI. So when I was working as a regional program specialist at the time, uh, a state in particular, Ohio, says, we can't share data with you because you're not law enforcement. So I approached the county commission and they made me coroner. And it was a special, a special case of being the county coroner, uh, gave me an ORI and suddenly I'm law enforcement, so, and it was special circumstances. Well, you know, they expired over the years, because when I worked with University of North Texas Health Science Center, they had an ORI, so we were operating under an ORI, and that's, you know, just a law enforcement designation to collect family reference samples of DNA, so when this happened this year, and I was no longer able to do that, I went back to the county commission, and for the purpose of missing and unidentified persons, you know, they gave me the appointment of coroner again. We don't typically have coroners in Tennessee anymore. My great-grandfather was one of the last coroners here, I think, uh, that was an elected coroner. And um, he died before I was born. But now that I'm the county coroner again, um, when I partner with somebody, it's not just Todd Matthews' partner with an entity to go after NamUs. I'm doing it as as a county coroner with an ORI. So it's not like I'm I'm, I'm not just an individual, I'm um, representing more, and, uh, you know, and I want to work remotely from here in Urban County, so that was my county saying, we not only support you in what you're doing, you know, you're restored to what you were before, do what you have to do, and I explained it to them specifically for missing and unidentified, I'm not going to be out chasing the ambulance or pronouncing anybody dead, unless they want me to, and um, that's, that's the purpose of the job, it has no pay, that's specifically what I asked for, we went to the budget department. I I want no pay. So that was the biggest thing. The biggest hurdle is what do you want? And what I want is, and and a lot of the people, because of that local series that I did in the newspaper, you know, it's 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 kind of explained to them more like what I did. It was always mysterious what I did with nameless, because it didn't really have a local connection. But going back to that story, I really didn't have to explain to them, here's what I want to do. And it's an incredible act of faith and trust on their part to say we believe you should have this opportunity and it will be for their good. It'll be for everybody's good if I can use it in the right way to get NamUs and uh, and to collect family reference samples. So once again, if I have a missing persons family, I can collect a sample that might not get collected otherwise and, you know, send it into CODIS and, and get that into the system so it can be compared. I worked on a state law in Tennessee and uh, you know, it was actually requirement to use NamUs. So the state of Tennessee by law must use name us for missing and unidentified over 30 days. There's like 10 states that worked on to get that. It um, wasn't always fully maintained. And I think a lot of it was because people didn't know exactly what to do or didn't know the resources. So I can fill that gap. You pass the law and if people don't understand, you do it yourself. You know, and I'm, I'm here to do it as county coroner. I can collect the samples. I can do data entry for their cases. So instead of saying you have to do this, it's like we have to do this. And I think that's the way you have to look at those things. It's like, this is our problem, not mine or yours. It's our problem. So uh, I'm looking at another state resolution in Tennessee that I worked on this year that puts an emphasis more on other forms of identification, not just DNA that's going to take months and months and months and funding runs out. There are fingerprints and dental records that a lot of times in my experience, I found law enforcement might not have collected because they felt like they already did the DNA and the DNA might take a long time or it might not be the magic bullet. You know, you have to have remains that can be compared. Uh, If you have degraded remains, you can't do a DNA comparison. So to put an emphasis on, my thought of with the resolution is to get the, the care providers, to compel them to come forward. Like in my experience, I don't know where you went to the dentist. If I was looking for your medical records or dental records, I don't know if you have a pin in your hip and if your family doesn't tell me that I'm not gonna know. But what if the medical providers read the story knew you were a patient, you were missing. It's not a violation of the HIPAA law for them to have a staff member contact the local agency and say, hey, I was a John Smith's dentist by the way. And I think that pushing of the information across the table makes it easier for law enforcement to reach out and take it. They're not going to push it away. They might not seek it out actively if they think that it's something they can go back and get later. But if somebody slides an envelope across the table, all you got to do is take it. I think that's going to help, you know, push and pull. So, and if what if somebody put a pin in my hip? Uh, I would, I would very much like for them to come forward with any X-rays that could identify my body, and I won't be mad. If they contact law enforcement, it's not a HIPAA violation, you know. And I've talked to a lot of the local uh, care providers and, oh, yes, if anybody contacted us, we would immediately submit any medical records. What if I don't know to call you? You know, that's the whole. So It's a resolution, not a state law. It's a suggestion that care providers actively participate on behalf of the safety and well-being of their patient. They're not violating the HIPAA law. And they can even ask them in advance, like, should something happen that you're missing? Do you mind if we share? That could be written into their office protocol. Would you mind us sharing your medical information should you become involved in some type of crime or disappearance? Sure. You know, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to do that? But just something to actually just make people talk about it, like that resolution might not change a lot of minds immediately, but it's going to force um, the, the people that pass these laws to talk about that. Why should we do this? What if it fails to go through? Well, they've talked about it. At least they've talked about it and they're aware of these things when they go forth to make other laws. So if nothing else, it's a statement in Tennessee and then Tennessee was very happy to have. It's bipartisan and we all need good news right now. So anything to do that we can do to pass something to increase the wellness and uh, health and wellness of our citizens. We should do that.
0: And uh, Todd, I, I have to ask next to where it says Overton County corner on your email signature, there's a, seems like a serial number. Is that your cadaver ID number or something like that?
2: It's the ORI. That is the, uh, the law enforcement designation. If you're accessing NCIC, that is the, the number, that's the number that I would submit family reference samples of DNA under. So that's just a uh, full disclosure you know, this is, this is what it is. So I don't really have to report to anybody in the county. I'm not really interfering with anything in the county. Uh, they gave me the opportunity to, to have that role, not abuse it, but to use it. they recognized me as valid and trusted me to do the right thing with it. And I'm an open book. They can read it in the newspaper, you know, whatever I'm in the newspaper.
1: Speaking of books, uh, you're, you're writing a book, and I can imagine that it's not going to be the only book that you will, uh, you will write and complete and publish. Uh, what, it, what is the concept of, of your first book? Is it more like, here's my story, or is it more about a single case, or is it sort of like a guide for anybody who wants to do the type of web sleuthing and the work that you've done with the government? Like, how, is, is that part of it, too?
2: I think it's going to be a lot like a lot of that we've not figured out yet. And, you know, and i got a very structured writer, uh, you know, she's not a ghost writer. She's going to be part of it. I mean, we're going to do this 50-50 and uh, she's going to give me tasks. Like I can't read your mind. I don't know that acronym. Just like you guys like to explain the acronyms. A lot of times I don't see these things. So I need somebody that's far enough removed that can be objective to help me, help me with these stories. I can tell you a story all day long but it has to translate from hillbilly to human, you know? So, I mean, it, it, it does. I mean, I, I don't, I don't always know to explain these things in detail and she can just stop me. I think we had a conversation and during the period of one paragraph, she's like, stop me no more, no less than like 10 times. But wait a minute. What's that? What's that? So I've had to learn to think in complete sentences and, and full description of things. So, and that's been a learning experience, but it'll be definitely a book of cases. Of course, there's going to be some biographical like here's here's, why I, I i do this and uh here's some of my background some of the things that kind of haunt me and um and i had a bad habit of getting close to people you know i talked about the girl the other just just a few minutes ago right after tent girl there was a local law enforcement officer and he wasn't much older than me he approached me my sister was murdered and i don't know uh, her body was found at the bottom of a cliff with no broken bones so that was a body that uh they allowed me to exhume. We exhume that. You know, it's like I stayed in the Holiday and Express last night and you're gonna let me exhume this body. Uh but the the platform that the tent girl immediately gave me, uh, you know, was it was the opportunity to really and you had it's like shit, I gotta do good work, man. If if these people have this faith in me, I gotta have this faith in myself, I gotta be able to do this. So I mean it's like they put a scalpel in your hand, so you're gonna do brain surgery, and it's like, you better do it right, you know. So that's what I dedicated myself to doing. And uh, we're still working on that case. That's the story that we're working on twenty years later with uh, unfinished business. You know, we're clarifying the things that we do know. Well, that officer, her brother, that came to me, um, I didn't like him in school. He was older than me, and I always thought him just just not a very likable person. Kind of dark and uh, just just wasn't really very friendly. And I say that now because I love him. I'll, he has, he'll know that if he hears this. Um, I didn't know that he had a sister that died in that way. I didn't know that he had another sister that died in a car wreck. I, I totally get why he's like he was, you know, he had to survive himself. Are you guys there? I don't Oh, There you are. Yeah. Yeah, we're. So it didn't take long to figure out, you know, why, why Brian had some of the issues that he had and why he wasn't a very outgoing person. And then we developed a good relationship. He's, I would have to say he's probably my best friend you know, in, you know, outside of this world, but, uh, and now his, his daughter and my daughter-in-law are first cousins. So they're family, you know, he's, he's actually my daughter-in-law's uncle. So we're literally family now. So, I mean, it all came together. So I had to have somebody to help me write the story about his sister because it, it comes so close that it just, I don't see it as happening to somebody else. You know, that was that's part of my extended family now. So I had to have somebody to help me stay objective and not get too emotionally um, one sided with things.
1: Yeah. And I'll, I'll
2: share those stories with you, those four articles, if you want to share them with your audience. It's it's more important to the people locally. But I mean, to see, you know, what a towns went through with this is, is kind of an incredible thing. And I could not have done it without Catherine Kopp, the writer. That it contacted me, and I'm working with. She she's done an amazing job at helping me put fragmented thoughts together.
1: Well, you certainly have so many stories, and your history is so uh, rich with experience and and, uh, and like I feel like every time we have a conversation, it's just advice to a, a massive amount of people. I feel like you, you your experience can be interpreted as. I sort of like the how to of 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 approaching something like this, um, or how, <laughs> yeah, I mean, or or how not to. But you know, it's like how to how to how to do it without how to do it without failing, and how to sort of trust your gut. You know, trust your instincts on it. And I feel like that's going to be a, a lot of what's in your book is hey there's no blueprint when you started so yeah there's no roadmap for this so you have to figure out like this is a good gut feeling do I go with this or not um and a, a lot of us are are like that uh trying to figure out like is this right or wrong
2: yeah and more like you know thinking about digging yeah. up somebody first person not you know bicky when I examined her body you know there was a a moral catastrophe there, you know, the night before it's like, Oh my God, I'm going to open a grave. I'm going to pull somebody out of, out of their eternal sleep. Is this okay? You know, with, with God and, and whoever, you know, is this, is this going to be okay? And it, and it was, it become very clear. So I had to have that moment of um, worry, walking the floors all night. And then a moment of clarity, it was the right thing to do. And when, I put her body back in the grave, her brother and I did. Her mother gave us a comforter to wrap her in. So when she says, I have something for Vicki, she gave her daughter Vicki a gift 25 years after her death. And we did wrap her in that uh, comforter. She scaled the remains, but she was put out as anatomically correct as we possibly could do it. And she's in that comforter that her mother bought for 25 years after her death. So she was able to give a gift to her daughter very directly. And, how that makes you feel is so good to be able to facilitate that wish for somebody. Um, that was, that was incredible to do that.
1: Um, yeah. there's a, there's a real, uh, beauty to that because that, that mother has probably heard hundreds of times. I only, I, I wish, I wish closure for you, but that yep. mother's probably thinking there is no real closure. Even, even if I do get an answer, there's just an answer uh, because she'll always be missing her daughter. And I feel like that one moment where she was able to wrap her in a comforter was as close to closure as she would ever get. And there is a there's a real, you know, you did a good thing in the world type feeling there.
2: Well, and it, it, it helped me too. What what she didn't understand. She might not have known and maybe she is wise enough to know she done something for me, too plugging my phone here as we're going, uh, it gave me the opportunity, I feel like, to leave her better off than I found her. And I felt like I did. I not only opened her grave and, and disturbed it, uh, we put it back better than it was. And and I was able to bring something from her mother to her. Hopefully that, that made things right. And I feel, I feel at peace with it. I could visit her grave now and I don't feel like I did the wrong thing. I feel like I did the only thing I could do.
0: Well, that's amazing. Todd Matthews, uh, your stories, your job, your life is, uh, ever fascinating to us. Uh, you have an open door policy on this show. Uh, we would love to talk with you more. Um, there's more stories. Um, we want to hear about dead and gone. We want to hear about you as an actor. There's so much more to, uh, discuss with you, Todd. So let's connect again soon.
2: Done. I mean, this was a moment's notice that you guys put this together for me and, uh, when you tell me the door is open, I might stick my foot in it. So, and, and <laughs> try to take that. But it was important because we have such a short period of time on this grant. I felt like it's important that people knew some of the things. And uh, I asked for their support. If there's anything that somebody can send through, you guys supporting that. I, if if I can get my hands back on NamUs, I swear to God, I'll put it. I'll, I'll I'll do anything I can to put it in a place or or put it in a position where. It'll do exactly as it was intended to do. And even if I have to walk away, I will. I will walk away when I know that it's okay. I will leave it alone and let the next generation take care of it. But I have to know it's put somewhere. It was just too much work and too much blood, sweat, and tears. Too much. (laughs)